This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today is part two of our series on cancer myths. In part one, episode 71, we talked about breast cancer myths. There are a lot of them, and today we'll talk about several myths connected to different types of cancer with the help of several of the top docs here at the James. And it's important to dispel cancer myths because they can be really dangerous. Myths and lack of knowledge can prevent people from taking the proper precautions, from getting the regular screenings that can prevent cancer or detect it in the early stages when it's most treatable, and from seeking medical attention that could save their lives. So let's get going and start with Joel Meyerson, one of the world's leading sarcoma surgeons and the director of the James Sarcoma Program. I asked Joel about what is probably the single most common myth in all of cancer, the one that pretty much every James doctor I talked to mentioned. Here it is. Doing a biopsy or performing surgery to remove a cancerous tumor exposes it to the air, and this causes the cancer cells to grow and spread faster. Yeah, it's really, it is a myth. Uh, And where that came from is in the past, before we had the imaging studies that we have today, like CT scans and MRI scans, doctors didn't have a good way to look inside someone's body to find out if they had cancer and, and how far it had progressed. So they would do surgical procedures to open up their body cavity and look and see what the extent of the cancer was. A lot of those people had started to have symptoms. That's why they came to medical attention. The doctors would look and say the cancer is pretty far advanced and there's not much we could do about it. They would close them up so they wouldn't take out the cancer because it was too far advanced. And as I said, those people were close to the tipping point where they would start to get sicker. And the myth sort of developed because the people got opened up and shortly after the surgery, the cancer would progress pretty quickly. And people unfortunately believed that the cancer had spread because of the operation rather than the cancer operation documented that had gotten that far. And so today, the advent of CT scans in the late 1970s and MRI in the early 1980s allowed us to see how advanced the cancer is before we do that. And so we don't have to open up people's bodies today to get that information. Do you think that that myth is still around and that that can prevent people from getting the diagnostic biopsies or seeing doctors that they need to to... to treat and potentially save their lives. Absolutely. I I hear people say that all the time still today. People come in and say, I don't want to have a biopsy because it's going to spread my cancer, or I don't want to have surgery because it's going to spread my cancer. And I have to go through the same story that I just talked to them and try to explain to them that it's not really the surgery that's creating the problem. It's really the extent of their um, cancer that that we now already know, and we know that the surgery is going to help them and not harm them. And a biopsy, the only way we can know what type of cancer they have is we have to do a biopsy to find that out. So this is an example of a myth that that is dangerous. It's very dangerous because people are afraid that we're going to, by finding that information out, going to potentially harm them, and it delays their care and allows their cancer to get more advanced before they start care. Our next myth is that the primary cause of head and neck cancers is smoking and drinking, which sounds logical, right? To get the facts about this myth, I checked with Matt Old, the director of the Head and Neck Cancer Division at the James. 
No, it's not. In the past, uh, head and neck cancers were mainly caused by smoking and drinking. Uh, but over the last 10 to 15 years, we've discovered that uh, oral pharynx cancer uh, of the tonsil and tongue base is now being caused primarily by HPV. And so we call this the HPV epidemic. It's the same uh, types that cause cervical cancer. And, and, and this is really important uh, to understand because it's treated differently. Uh, they respond differently. But it's a different cancer than in the past, uh, which were caused by smoking and drinking. So the decrease in smoking has reduced the number of head and neck cancers, but the increase in HPV has increased. Correct. And Overall, we're seeing more and more cancers uh, due to this epidemic. They actually think that it could be the most common cancer in the age group of 45 to 65 in about 10 years, uh, which, which makes our push for vaccination uh, extremely important going forward. And the, va- the HPV, HPV vaccination can prevent it. Absolutely. Uh, this, the high-risk subtypes that cause HPV cancer are in the vaccination. So it's very important that we educate our, our primary practitioners, our pediatricians, and the general population that this is a cancer that can be prevented. It used to be just for uh, teenagers and young boys and and women uh, for the prevention of cervical cancer uh, and warts, but now they've extended all the way up to the age of 45 uh, because of uh, what we know now uh, is causing uh, this epidemic. Okay, here's our next myth. When a cancer patient receives radiation treatment, they actually become radioactive, like in some sci-fi movie where an experiment in the lab has gone horribly wrong. To get the facts, I asked Arnab Chakravarti, the chair of the James Department of Radiation Oncology. Thank you, Steve. That is a common misperception. With external beam treatments, these are basically high-energy x-rays that are delivered to the patient. It literally goes into the patient, passes straight through, and there's no radioactivity left behind. There's an internal form of radiation called brachytherapy that patients with certain types of cancers like prostate cancers and cervical cancers often receive these involve internal radioactive sources. These are like pellets. Aren't these they? are like pellets. Yeah, okay, I've heard and of these. And these decay slowly in the body. And for a time, patients can be slightly radioactive. Uh, for example, we tell grandparents not to have their grandkids sit on their laps for a certain period of time. But with uh, external beam radiation, which is the most common type of radiation delivered in the United States, over probably 95% of cases are external beam cases. These patients receive no, these patients are not radioactive whatsoever. So do you think the myth came from that small percentage of people who get these radioactive pellets? Yes. I mean, originally in the field of radiation oncology, um, radiation was commonly delivered through these internal pellets, uh, radioactive sources, which at least temporarily uh, can make one radioactive if they're interstitial, if they're left within the organ. But like you said, in 95% of the cases, it's external beams. External beams. So there's no, okay. Yes. So the other myth or misconception we've heard about in in terms of radiation is that 
it's going to make me nauseous. I'm going to vomit. I'm going to be sick. Yes. That's a common misperception. Um, Sure, if a patient has cancer of the stomach or digestive organs, and those organs are the target of radiation, radiation can make those patients nauseated directly. Um, But in most cases where the cancers are elsewhere in the body, um, external beam radiation usually does not make patients feel nauseated per se. Oftentimes, they feel a bit fatigued. Um, If, for example, um, it's a protracted course of radiation over time, uh, patients may uh, not eat normally. And because of these dietary changes, they may feel a little bit uh, different than usual. Um, But the radiation itself doesn't directly cause nausea in those cases. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with a few more cancer myths. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back, and as you've heard, there are a lot of cancer myths out there. The recorded history of myths dates back thousands of years to the Greeks and Greek mythology, and pretty much every succeeding society created their own myths. These myths are a way to explain the unexplainable, things that don't seem to have any other explanation. For example, lightning. That's how we got the myth of Zeus and his ability to hurl thunderbolts at his enemies. But now we have science to help us understand the world around us and the facts about cancer. My next myth-busting guest is Ted Wagner. Ted is the director of the Center for Tobacco Research and the co-leader of the Cancer Control Program here at the James. There are a lot of myths around smoking. One of the most common ones is that a cigarette every now and then isn't really that bad for me. It's, it's okay. What harm can it do? We actually do know from studies uh, that with uh, even as little as three cigarettes uh, a day, even when you get below there, we still do see uh, issues in terms of heart disease um, and some cancers. Um, so even small amounts of tobacco can hurt you. And the reason for that is because um, when you smoke, I mean, cigarettes have uh, thousands of chemicals in them, but 60 are known to be carcinogenic. And essentially what you're doing is every time you inhale it, you're you – know, um, causing damage to your your DNA. Um, and it just takes one of those to mutate and uh, continue to, uh, you know, uh, develop into a tumor. So um, uh, no real safe amount of smoking. Um, but if you look at the data, you know, uh, one a year isn't going to kill you. <laughs> okay. But if, if you're smoking weekly, um, you know, especially like, especially if you're getting up to like a pack for sure, like on a weekend, like when you're drinking or I just only have five or 10 or something while I'm out at the bar, 
no, you're you're asking for it. And is the danger that occasional smoking will turn into regular smoking and then a pack a day? There's a huge yes. There are people out there that are called chippers who, um, for some reason, they don't get bitten by the the nicotine addiction bug, and they can you know just when they're out drinking, they can smoke a couple and forget about it. That's a really rare bird. Most of the time, uh, people, as soon as they start having a few cigarettes, it feels really good. I mean, the dopamine (laughs) release and everything else you get um, is nice. Um, I'm a former smoker. I quit in 2004. Um, Yeah. So uh, uh, it's a tough thing to quit. So if you never start, that would be ideal. So, Ted, I've, some people believe that if they've been smoking for, for years, for many years, the damage is already done. What's the point in quitting now? If I'm going to get lung cancer, I'm going to get it. It's too late. Right. So it's never too late to quit. Um, uh, I mean, if someone told you you're dying today, go ahead, light that up and, and enjoy if, if, that's what you, if that's what you choose to do. But um, no, even people who have been diagnosed with cancer or, you know, are in their 50s, 60s, there are immediate benefits from quitting. And you'll, you'll experience those within even f- up to 48 hours. And those can be, you know, cardiovascular um, changes you see, lowering in blood pressure, um, improved breathing. Um, and then also little things people don't think about, you know, uh, wound healing. So oh. when, you have, when you have a surgery or, um, and, you know, you're trying to recoup from that, um, smoking makes that more difficult. Um, it makes it harder. Um, you know, there's a lot of vasoconstriction and things like that caused from smoking. Um, Which lung cancer patients may have surgery. Exactly. And if they continue to smoke, it's like a double-edged sword. Exactly. So, um, again, uh, there's never a bad time to quit. It will lead to a benefit beyond just, you know, your pocketbook and not spending, you know, five to ten bucks on that pack of cigarettes. Um uh, and, you know, keep you smelling a little fresher. Um, it, it really does improve your health. It, it's something that very quickly within the first, uh, like I said, first 48 hours, but then definitely within two weeks, you start seeing enormous benefits. And I don't have the exact data um, uh, in mind. I don't know if, if there's even a way for us to to put a link into some of these, uh, the podcast, but, um, you know, there are tables that they've developed that show at what age you quit and then how it starts increasing your life expectancy. Um, uh, and you see changes all the way up until people are like 60, 70 years old. You can start increasing your life expectancy. Obviously, the you know it's like turning a ship. If you turn the ship you know, 10 miles from wherever you're targeting, you turn it right away, you're going to be farther and farther away from, you know, death um, or whatever, um, the sooner you do quit, but you can still turn the ship away even at a later time and get farther away from, you know, what might be inevitable. So the takeaway is quit now, Yep. but, and it doesn't matter what age you are and the younger you quit, the better off you'll be. A hundred percent. Ted, another myth is that people who smoke pipes and cigars aren't as much as much at risk for lung cancer since they don't inhale. Mm. So that's a really good question. So um, the inhaling part doesn't it matters somewhat, but not much in terms of of 
cancerous because there are carcinogens that are in cigars. Um, there's one uh, called NNN. Um, it stands for something really long that I can't yeah, pronounce. NNN. Uh, okay. NNN. That sounds ominous. Exactly. <laughs> that that causes you know mouth and throat cancer. Right. Um, and that's in yeah. cigar tobacco. So if you just mouth hold it. Um, uh, you're increasing your risk for that. Now, there's also another, uh, and what those are called, tobacco-specific nitrosamines, called NNK, that is specific to lung. So if you do inhale a cigar, y- you are inhaling NNK into your lungs, which um, is a very potent lung carcinogen. It's obviously in cigarettes as well. The other thing I was going to say is, so with premium cigars, you know, like Cubans or whatever, typically people aren't smoking those, you know, like four a day. Right. Um, so kind of the frequency thing comes in, into a, uh, into play. Um, so, again, if you smoke a cigar one a month, the data hasn't supported that that would lead to cancer. Um, uh, however, what's very interesting is as regulations have really tightened up on cigarettes – um, tobacco companies have started to create cigars that um, look a whole lot like cigarettes but are regulated as cigars. And when you look how people smoke them, they actually smoke them just like a cigarette. And yeah, those little thin cigars with often with plastic tips. Yes, with plastic tips. Then there's also what are called uh, little – so those are called cigarillos or cigarillos. Um, sometimes we call them. Um, there's also little cigars that look just like cigarettes with a filter and everything, but they, they're wrapped in brown paper. And that gets around regulations for cigarettes. Um, so here's something really interesting. Um, uh, people might be familiar with a, 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 a cigarette called a clove, clove cigarettes. Right. Okay. So they're supposed to be healthier. The, the, oh yeah, <laughs> they're not healthier. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. Um, uh, those were so f- uh, with the 2009 Tobacco Control Act that President Obama signed into law. It actually banned all flavors in all cigarettes, um, and cloves were regulated as a cigarette, and clove is a flavor. And so they uh, banned clove cigarettes. Um, well, what the what the industry do? They're smart people and they want to make money. And if the business of business is business, they knew that their business was let's find a way around this uh, restriction. So what did they do? Instead of having clove filtered cigarettes, they created clove filtered cigars, uh, little filtered cigars got around, to get around the to get around it. And sales of clove-filtered little cigars increased by 1,900% the year after the Tobacco Control Act. And what what negative bad things do clove cigars do to people's same health as, and lungs? They're the exact, exact same as cigarettes. cigarettes. Yeah, and when, it's funny, too, because when I was in college and um, – I, I would smoke cloves, and I remember hearing people say, oh, they're, they're so much better for you. I mean, there's not even tobacco in them. One, that's a lie. There's tobacco in cloves. Um, there's just flavorants in it that make it taste really good. Um, and so, uh, But they carry the exact same harm as cigarettes. They have all the exact same constituents in there, you know, all your, all your specific carcinogens. Obviously, you're smoking something. That means it's burning. And when you're inhaling something that's burning, it's producing carbon monoxide, which is a pretty strong uh, cardiovascular toxin as well. Um, so, I mean, if you wouldn't put your mouth around, you know, the exa- car exhaust, <laughs> yeah. y- y- that's because that's carbon monoxide. You you shouldn't be doing the same thing for, for cigarettes. So, um, yeah. So, that's a cigar now that is just as bad as a cigarette. Those little tiny cigars that look like 
cigarettes now. Those are on the market and people smoke them like cigarettes. They're much cheaper than cigarettes. So that's the other workaround because the industry doesn't have to pay as high taxes on those. Um, and then you have your cigarillos, which are incredibly flavored. Um, the, and I don't mean that in a good way. I mean they, they're flavored and we see high levels, especially of African-American youth using those. Um, and unfortunately, they believe that flavors make it safer um, or less harmful. Did, did you say African-American youths? Yes. So younger people start yep. and then that becomes a lifelong habit. Correct. So that's the, da- that, well, the double danger. Correct. Our final myth buster is Carlo Contreras, a James surgical oncologist who specializes in skin cancer. Skin cancer is the most common form of cancer, and so, as you'd expect, there are a lot of myths. Let's debunk a couple of them, starting with this one. Only older people get skin cancer. So while elderly patients or older patients um, have a higher risk, younger patients still can get skin cancer. And we see that uh, pretty routinely. Again, being uh, a large referral center, we see some more of the unusual cases. Children can get skin cancer. Uh, Certainly there are certain genetic syndromes that predispose you to developing cancer, skin cancer specifically. And so yes, younger patients can get skin cancer. So at thousands of gyms all over the country, there are tens of thousands of tanning beds. So they have to be safe. Otherwise, the government wouldn't allow them to be there, right? Tanning beds are not safe. Tanning beds use ultraviolet light rays to cause changes in the skin. Those changes in the skin in addition to making it look darker, are causing genetic mutations in the skin. Over time, more and more genetic mutations will develop and that skin cell will no longer behave as it should. And when the skin skin cell is no longer behaving as it should, that is a skin cancer. There is no safe um, tanning bed. They are uniformly all using ultraviolet rays ultraviolet ray is the main risk factor for developing melanoma. This is especially true in young adults because those uh, that exposure early on in life gets compounded over time and they are at increased risk for developing skin cancer. So if I understand this correctly, ultraviolet light, which is comes from the sun and is what we're trying to protect ourselves from with sunblock, when you go into a tanning bed, you're probably getting a, a higher dose of that without any protection. That's exactly right. People with darker skin have more protection inherently from the sun, so they're, they don't get skin cancer. Part of that is true but part of it is not true. Um, So the first part where you said that uh, darker skin uh, individuals have more protection from the skin, from the sun, that is true. Um, Melanin is a pigment within our certain skin cells that is designed to protect us from the sun. And darker skin individuals have more of that pigment. Now, That doesn't mean that darker skinned individuals are immune from getting skin cancer. Darker skinned uh, individuals certainly can and do get skin cancer. 
when they get skin cancer, it tends to not be diagnosed in a timely fashion. And unfortunately, it is generally a worse prognosis than if a lighter skin individual develops skin cancer. So that, um, the fact, it's important for dark skin individuals to have skin examinations just as it is uh, lighter skinned individuals. Does the dark skin itself, is the, does that lead to the later uh, detection because the dark skin sort of hides the changes, the ABCDEs that you were talking about? Yeah, it can be. It can be. That's a, a that's one of the, the contributing factors. The other factor is that darker skinned individuals tend to have a higher incidence of melanomas that occur in more unusual parts of the body. We're talking about melanomas on the palms of the skin, on the bottom of the feet, underneath uh, nails as well. And so those are just areas that you tend to overlook when you're doing a skin exam. And that's why, uh, also part of the reason why there's a delay in diagnosis for dark-skinned individuals. So this is another example, I think, of a myth that's dangerous because if dark-skinned people think, oh, I'm not going to get skin cancer, I don't need to take precautions, I can be out all day without sunblock, without wearing a hat. Yeah, I think it's a myth both on the on the patient side of things, but also physicians. I think there are a lot of physicians that just overlook that, overlook a, a good quality skin exam as part of normal health maintenance for dark-skinned individuals. And really, everybody should have a good head-to-toe skin exam as part of their routine health maintenance when they see their primary care provider on an annual basis. Okay, there you have it, the facts and the science about several well-known cancer-related myths. And now, when you hear someone talk about one of these myths as if they were factual, you can set them straight and fill them in on what's real. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.